It's not good enough to be good at school or good at sport anymore. Students are facing unprecedented pressure to perform at the highest levels. And that is taking a toll on their mental health, not just as teenagers, but onwards for a lifetime. Jennifer Brahendi Wallace is a journalist and mum who investigates what's driving the drive to achieve. She calls it Childhood Inc. And what she found is that this isn't just an overparenting problem, it's a societal one. It's driven by increasing income inequality and a changing job market. Her book is called Never Enough When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. And she joins me now. Hello. So nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. And you. When does encouraging excellence in our kids actually become toxic achievement? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. So in the way I define it is that it be, achievement becomes toxic when our children's or our own sense of self is so tangled up in our successes that we can't separate it, that we feel like our worth is contingent on our performance, on our successes, or when we don't success, that we're only as good as our failures. So that's when it becomes toxic, when our sense of self-worth is totally reliant on our achievements. Here in Auckland, we have a part of the city known as Grammar Zone, um, in fact, an even smaller part of the city known as Double Grammar Zone, um, which is a place that you can buy a house uh, that will qualify your students to go to, quote, the right schools. Um, Is there anything wrong with that? Oh, well, I, I think what you're hitting on is something that I found in the research, which is, you know, of course, parents want to do what's best for their kid, put their kids into the best school, right? So sacrifice what they can to buy a home in that right zone, as you're saying. But unfortunately, what the research in the U.S. finds is that sending kids to those kinds of schools where it can feel very hyper competitive, you know, with parents who have a very similar definition of success, those schools in the U.S., those students attending those kinds of schools are now officially an at-risk group, meaning that they are two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than teens attending schools in more middle-class environments. And researchers find it is this excessive pressure to achieve that you know, the kids are, are needing to outcompete their peers for spots in advanced placement classes or on, you know, high level sports teams. Um, and so it really sets a kid up for this excessive pressure. And yet when you asked parents what they want for their children, only a handful of respondents said good grades and a good career. There seems to be a disconnect between what some parents say about their priorities and and what they do? I think there is a disconnect. Um, What I found was not only were parents reporting that, uh, so I I conducted a a very large scale study of 6,500 parents across the country with the help of a researcher at uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education. And what I found was that parents were prioritizing, reporting that they prioritized things like wanting their kids to be happy and, you know, kind citizens. 
um, but really pointing to other families in their communities as saying, you know, I feel this way, but other families think that going to a top ranked school and career success are what's most important to their children. So it is these parents feeling one pit against each other, but two parents communicating certain things to their children versus what they believe they're communicating. So there is this disconnect between what parents say they prioritize and what their children feel like they are prioritizing in the home. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then there's this other paradox, which is that there's so much talk about this generation being over overprotected and and coddled. But what you're talking about, this sort of toxic achievement culture, that almost seems to be the opposite of coddling. That is exactly right. Uh, one researcher who, her name is Sunya Luther, she passed away recently, but she was one of the world's leading researchers on resilience. And her point in studying this population, these these kids who felt under an excessive pressure to achieve, she said the expectations on modern children keep rising to a point where they are now caught up in the same kind of grind culture <laughs> that we are seeing in their parents. This, this constant need to do more and more, to achieve higher. Every goal sets the standard for having to reach another goal. I mean, students I interviewed talked about how praise from their teachers or their coaches or their parents felt like yet another form of pressure. It wasn't just enough to achieve. They had to keep achieving, keep climbing the ladder. There was never time to rest. As you say, you talked to many parents for this book. Can you tell us about Catherine? She, she took helping her son, quote, live up to his potential too far, right? Oh, she was one of the first parents that I met. She had filled out my parenting survey. And at the end of the survey, I asked parents if they'd be willing to be interviewed, either anonymously or with their names attached. And hundreds of parents reached out. And Catherine was one of them. So I went up to visit her. And she was talking about how when she, when her child was in middle school, you know, she really had a very relaxed, wonderful relationship with him. And then as he started to to age up um, and he got into a gifted honors program, she started to question what her role really was as a parent. The other parents were saying to her, you know, are, how are you how are you fostering his gift? Are you signing him up for programs on the mm -hmm. weekends for special camps for him to attend? And she said she kind of lost the plot and she felt like it was her responsibility to make her son a success. And what happened to her is that senior year, she was so caught up in her own parenting and wanting to be the perfect parent that she missed so many of the warning signs that he was sending her that the pressure at school was too much until he refused to get out of bed. He refused to go to school. With therapy and some antidepressants, he was able to make it back to school to finish out senior year. But when he went on to college within that first freshman year, when the stress started ratcheting up again, he didn't have the coping skills to manage it and dropped out. And it took him nine years to graduate college. So she, you know, she, when I was comforting her, hearing the story, I was saying, I understand how you feel parents feel today. Like it is our job to make our kids a success. 
And she put her hand on me like a warning from one mother to another. And she said, I have so many regrets. I thought it was my job to push my child to excellence. And it wasn't my job. And I almost ruined him. So, you know, a, a chill went up my spine thinking about my own son who was in eighth grade at the time. And I just was so grateful for parents like Catherine who were sharing their deepest, darkest moments in the hopes that that she could help families avoid a similar fate. Mind you, your eighth grader, I think, didn't uh, give you much of a chance to put pressure on him. What, what happened, because he was really into architecture, and what happened when you tried to sign him up for an extension class? I found one that would accept him, a middle schooler, and the head of the, the class said, as long as I sat next to him, uh, he could attend, because it was really meant for older teens and college students. And so when William walked in the door that day, I said, honey, I'm so excited. I found you a course, uh, an after-school course on architecture and design. And he said to me, looking at me straight in the eyes, mom, I love architecture. Please don't ruin it for me. (laughs) Put me in my place. Yeah, do, do you think that, um, and by the way, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Jennifer Brahini wallace uh, She's a journalist and a mum, uh, and her book is called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Um, do, you, do you think parents are unrealistic or, um, or, or that they don't realise that they are passing on their own stress and anxiety about marks or doing well in sport or whatever, that they're passing them on to their kids without them even realizing? I think parents definitely are not realizing it. And actually, if if there's a parent out there listening and wondering, you know, am I, am I going into that toxic achievement realm? Um, <clears throat> a psychoanalyst who's popular here in the U.S., her name is Tina Payne Bryson. She gave me four questions that I think are really helpful for parents to reflect on what is the kind of pressure they're sending in their own home. So uh, the first thing she says is look at your child's calendar. How are they spending their time outside of school? Are they pursuing a lot of, you know, tutoring or coaching or extracurricular activities that are really there to kind of bolster achievement? Then she said, look at how you spend your money as it relates to your child. How much of it is towards achievement-oriented activities? The third thing she says is take notice of what you ask your child about. When they walk in the door after school, what's the first thing you ask? Is it how'd you do on that Spanish quiz? Or is it something more innocuous? Like what did you have for lunch today? Or what did you do in gym class? Mm. Something that sends a signal that the whole child matters. And then the fourth, fourth note of reflection She said, notice what you argue with your children about. Those four questions, the calendar, your money, what you ask about and what you argue about, those four things can tell a lot about the kind of messages you're sending your children around achievement. Very interesting. And yet you don't blame parents entirely for this sort of achievement arms race. Where does it begin, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I... um, Well, I I wanted to know what these deep roots were, where it was coming. And, you know, the the story, I outline it in the beginning of the book, but the story, the narrative that really resonates with me is what I call the economic story. 
And what I mean by that is when I was growing up in the U.S. in, in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. Even things like food was more affordable. There was slack in the system. A parent like my parents could be relatively assured that even with some setbacks, some failures, that I would most likely be able to replicate my childhood, if not even do better than my own parents did. That's the American dream. But today's modern parents are facing a different reality. We have seen in the last three decades, four decades, an ushering in of extreme inequality. We are seeing the crush of the middle class. And parents are, you know, nervous. They are, they are seeing the first generation millennials that are not going to do as well as their, their own parents did. And so this American dream of doing better than your family is due for a revision. And I think what a lot of parents are doing, even unconsciously, is that they are betting big that early childhood success, getting your kid into a, quote, good college here in the U.S., that that will act as a kind of safety vest uh, in a sea of economic uncertainty. We don't know what the jobs are going to be like in the future. So much feels unknown. Climate change, um, again, the crush of the middle class. But we're hoping that if we can just strap a life vest of college on them, that that could keep them afloat no matter what comes their way. But unfortunately, what the research is finding and what I found in my own interviews is that that life vest that we're using, hoping to protect our kids with, is operating more like a lead vest and drowning too many of the kids we're trying to protect. Yeah, and that seems to be a central theme of a lot of the commentary around artificial intelligence, that, that you are going to have to be really special to make a good living once the robots take over. Yes. I mean, there's so much unknown. We Parents don't, you know, it's always been the job of a parent to raise a child to thrive in the future. But the future has never felt more uncertain and with fewer and fewer guarantees and safety nets. So what this intensive parenting or helicopter parenting, whatever you want to call it, you know, I'm sick of the narrative that parents are just doing this because they want, you know, status and logos. Yes, that's part of it. That's part of our, you know, evolutionary heritage to want status. But it's so much more than that. We are, modern parents today are tasked with creating individualized safety nets for each one of our children. That's what this helicopter intensive parenting is about. We are sensing danger and uncertainty in the environment, and we are becoming social conduits like researchers say, and it's coming out in the way that we parent. This is not the fault of any individual parent. Like you said in the intro, this is a societal problem. This is bigger than any one parent, any one school, any one community. Yeah. Funny you mentioned the, the evolutionary component there. There, There is something biological going on, right, when, um, when your child achieves um, there's, I don't know if it's technically a dopamine hit, but that's the uh, the language that people understand these days. The hit yes. of finding out they've got an A, the hit of going on Facebook and sharing that they've made it into the um, the regional squad for a sport. It's we're fighting against something pretty primal there. It is. It is. We are. You know, when when our child, you know, parenting, raising a child is a form of reproductive success. We do not necessarily think about it in these terms, but. 
yes, when our kids score the winning goal or, you know, do well on a test or, or you know, we do get rewarded in our brains. We get a biological reward. Um, and when we sense that our children are slipping, when they are not doing as well, we are punished with a neurochemical cocktail in our brain that is punishing. It's painful. And so often without an awareness, we will act in ways that are not necessarily to our or to our children's advantage. For example, a child is, is you know, playing a sport and isn't getting playing time. And a parent, you know, might be frustrated and want to yell at the coach or yell at the referee about something just to, to alleviate that pain in the brain. But just because we have been evolved to, to feel those, to, to, to have those biological releases, it doesn't mean that um, we have to listen to them. You know, that is the difference between animals and humans. We can feel those feelings and we can choose a, a safer, healthier path forward. Some schools, elite schools, like to boast about how well they did um, in the um, in the national exams or how many of their kids reached a certain uh, academic level. I wonder if they should be boasting about something else, posting other sorts of data for parents. Well, it's interesting. The researchers that I interviewed for this book said parents should start demanding a mental health report card for their schools instead of, you know, bragging on their, their school's website. Gosh, that's interesting, saying, isn't it? Yeah, right. And it's, and there are, there are organizations that do this. They go into schools, they survey students, they survey faculty, and, um, you know, they, they give mental health report cards. And perhaps, you know, as parents who are facing this unprecedented epidemic of youth anxiety and depression and suicide ideation, perhaps it's something we should be demanding. By the way, we you know we've been talking mostly about academia so far, but sports sports used to be something you did for fun, right? Um, and and yeah. that was the reward. <clears throat> um, but there's more of a focus on achievement now. And and to be fair, you know, I've experienced this as well. If the coach asks for an extra practice or suggests they go along to the, um, you know, the the elite squad to try out for a better team, we, we do tend to cave in and go along with it, right? Many families do. And, you know, this is not to say that I'm anti-achievement or anti-sports or any of that. I think I enjoy ambition. I enjoy healthy ambition. What I'm trying to say in this book is that there is a healthy way of striving and there is an unhealthy way of striving. And the unhealthy way is the idea that we are only as good as our successes. And the problem with that mindset, with that way of thinking, is that eventually our kids will burn out. I call it dirty fuel. When when kids or, or parents or coaches try to tie that child's self-worth to their achievements, in order to motivate them. It might help them reach an immediate goal, but over the long run, that's going to clog that child's engine. What I found in my book, I went in search of the healthy strivers. And what I found was that those healthy strivers, the reason they were able to reach for high goals was because setbacks and failures were not an indictment of their worth. They were worthy even when they failed. They might be disappointed, they might be down and anxious and sad, 
but they were resilient. They were able to bounce back because they knew they were not their failures. They mattered for who they were deep inside. Yeah, one of the things you suggest around um, the idea of fostering healthy competition is to look at your children's friends and pick out positive attributes and and them to talk about. Yes, I talk about the idea that, you know, for example, if a child feels envious of their peers, you know, we we could explain to them that one, feeling envy is natural and normal. We evolved to feel envy. And there are two pathways that we can take. We can take the unhealthy route or the healthy route. The unhealthy route is trying to put that, you know, the put your competitor down so that you feel better by comparison. The healthy route though, is looking at the the target of your envy and saying, what is it that they have? How did they achieve that? What are the steps they took to reach that goal so that you could rise up too? So when we see competitors as somebody there to you know, give us obstacles so that we can be better. I I think it is a way of helping our children deal with competition and envy in healthy ways that not only makes them better, but that doesn't undermine relationships. And just a final thought, um, because it's it's a strong theme of the book, you say to counter kids who feel like they aren't good enough, we need to help them feel like they matter How important is mattering and how do you do it? Mattering is, to me, the key to healthy healthy achievement and healthy self-esteem and self-worth. How do you do it? You send messages day in and day out that you love your child for who they are deep at their core. And the way you do it is you read the book. You or you can head over to the matteringmovement.com, a nonprofit that I launched to help give parents and tools, parents more tools to foster cultures of mattering. But it's really about seeing and knowing your child for who they are deep inside, away from their achievements. Are they funny? Are they kind? Do they show empathy to their classmates and siblings? noticing who they are and pointing it out to them, helping them build a sense of self that isn't reliant on their achievements. Ironically, counterintuitively, having that strong core will actually lead to greater success because kids won't be afraid to reach for high goals, to go for things. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Jennifer Brahini wallace the book is called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Thank you and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for such a great conversation.